we have such great artists around here, and they do it so quickly, too. It's just, it's, I'm very impressed with the talent around here. How you doing tonight? Oh! Merry Christmas. I hope you are getting in the Christmas season, the Christmas spirit. I'm not quite there yet. I haven't listened to Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol, but uh, that's on the docket for tonight. I have to listen to Mr. Magoo's Carol. And then it just magically transforms me into Mr. Happy Christmas. Uh, so until then, I'm grouchy, so don't bug me, all right? Hey, uh, I have the uh, great pleasure of always being the one who has to bring financial news. <laughs> Lucky me. So uh, I have to give just a little bit of update. Uh, one good thing is that uh, we made an announcement last week about the campaign where we were at in terms of raising money for uh, disadvantaged families to provide the daycare that we have here and uh, addressing issues of homelessness. And uh, we were at, do we have numbers on that? Uh, you know, Saturday night is, is kind of a, the, you're getting the rough version, so I don't even know. Do we, I, I think we have some things to put up there, maybe not. Yeah, there we go. Okay, so we went from 2,000 last week to 24,297. So that's, we're almost halfway there. So that's a big jump. Uh, downside of that is that we're only halfway there. So uh, just keep that in mind and pray about that. Um, take that to the Lord and uh, just follow his, that's all we ever do here is just make known the need and ask the people who are, have spiritual buy-in to this place uh, to take that under consideration. Uh, there's also the issue of our overall budget, and th this is more serious. Well, it's all serious, but uh, we are right now currently around $164,000 behind, um, and, and that, that's a good chunk of change, and if we are, I mean, that has real-life implications, uh, whether we can, you know, pretty soon we'll have to do some course corrections so that, because we have to come out in, in, in the black. And, and so we have to make some course corrections that have implications. We have to look at ways that we can cut and restructure and whatever. You know, there's, there's, there's very few times where this is true, but when it comes to finances, there's, I almost wish I was a Calvinist. Because <laughs> it'd really be, you know, it'd be like, oh, you know, it's the will of God. And, and you know, if, if we don't make it, it must not have been God's will. You know, because it's all just got part of God's will. It, that'd be a nice, you know, fallback. Uh, I don't have that advantage. <laughs> um, it, 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 God really does empower us in, to have say-so and depends on our using our say-so in line with his say-so to bring about his say-so on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and, and so uh, we just ask the people who are, if this is your spiritual home, spiritual body, uh, take whatever responsibility for that that, that that God tells you to, all right? And, uh, and, and, just, and just obey. Submit to him and obey and we'll see where it goes from there, all right? And as always, just keep, Keep us in prayer. Keep the church in prayer. Uh, about the finances as well. Lord, be, be opening up people's hearts and massaging people's hearts and, and using this as a growth opportunity because that's what that, that it really is that. Okay, so we are in this series. We're calling More Than a Name. Uh, we're looking at the names of Jesus as prophesied by uh, Isaiah in chapter 9. Um, I'll get to that passage in a little bit. I, I wanted to back into uh, the message today by sharing a little bit of, well, sharing tell you about the first trophy I ever got. So I, I, I was uh, younger, in, in fourth, fifth, sixth grade, I, I was a little ahead of other kids in terms of growing up faster. So I was, I was okay. I was pretty good at football. Pretty good. But I wasn't outstanding. I wasn't like the kind of player that, that people are, would talk about after the game. Did you see that guy? Um, I, 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 I was told I was a very good blocker, <laughs> which was I think given as an explanation for why I don't get the ball that often as a running back. Oh, but you're a really good blocker. And so, um, in contrast to that, my brother, and I've shared this before, but my brother was a superstar. He was just off the charts. He was always talking about how he's scoring touchdowns all over the place, whatever. And he had tons of trophies. 
Well, not tons, but by, by, by the time I was in sixth grade, he probably had five, six or so. And back then, this is in the 70s now, trophies, I think, were a little harder to get than they are today. Now, with my grand, everybody gets a trophy. <laughs> my grandkids got trophies everywhere. But, but that, back then, it was, it was more rare. And so I didn't have any. And, and uh, finally, in sixth grade, we all went to the banquet. We have an end-of-the-year banquet you know, for our little sixth grade team. And, and I got a trophy. Uh, it was, um, I, I, I was the best team player because I blocked so well. Now, looking back on it, I really think that my dad talked the coach into making up a category to give me a trophy because he knew how bad I felt. At, at the end of the season, I, I was trying to hold back tears as I got in the car to go home after this game, and he noticed that and says, why, why, why are you sad? And I said, well, because I went the whole season, I didn't score a touchdown. And, and, and he gave me the speech about how important it is to be a good blocker. Uh, well, <laughs> and so I, I think he probably went and says, hey, my, my, I, I, don't, I, just, I wish I would have asked him that while he was still alive. Make sure that you ask your parents those important questions before they die. Because now i got to wait to go to heaven to find out, uh, did you actually, I suspected it. Because everyone was surprised that I got a trophy, including me. But I had a trophy. And it was, you know, it was something. So I got to go home and put, and it was, it was as big as anyone that, that Chris had. And so I had a moment of glory for, I, I've arrived. It was like, a really important thing for me to have this. Two days later, Chris comes back from his banquet, and he's got this monster trophy. That easily two and a half times the size of mine or any of the other ones on there. He was most valuable in the league or something or other. I don't even remember. But I just remember thinking, uh, you know, I had my little moment in the sun, and now, you know, once again, Chris, I love you if you're ever watching this, but yeah, I love my brother. But he, growing up in your shadows was one, was not pleasant. Uh, and so I was just like, once again, feeling like I just got, you know, he stole my limelight. Uh, my, my moment in the sun was stolen from me. You ever heard that happen to you where it's like, uh, your time to shine, and then somebody who's got more shine comes along and steals it? <sighs> Sometimes you get that with parents and kids. I don't know if you've ever run into folks like this, and maybe you are one of these folks, and God bless you, we love you. But uh, we're, we're, you, if you mention anything that you're proud of with your kid, like, oh, I'm so proud my daughter got an A on her, her her, her math test today. And they always got to come back with a one-up. Yeah, well, you know, my, my Kevin's never knock out an A. I, I don't know what that's about. And, and they're really, it's like, come on, can you just let me be happy for my kid? There's always got to be this competition. Ah, it gets, yeah, it's, it's all over the place. So, so here's the thing. As kingdom people, we are to be above such silliness and stupidity, right? That's petty. Uh, but we understand that as human beings, People can be tempted to be pulled into that. And that's what makes the story, that, uh, one aspect of the Christmas story, really intriguing. I had never noticed this before. I bet most of us haven't noticed it before. I only noticed this because Dan Kent pointed it out to me. Uh, I want to talk about Elizabeth. She's one of the unsung heroes of the Christmas story. Uh, Elizabeth is married to uh, Zechariah, who's a priest in the temple. Uh, they're a couple that they're way up in years, and they don't have any children. Though they were godly, uh, they, they, they were always waiting for the Messiah. They, uh, they were upstanding Jews that says God had favor on them. Yet, they didn't have a child. And in the ancient world, uh, it was always the woman's fault. Uh, it, it, and so even Luke says that she was barren. But that's just the way you, that, that's what you'd say in the first century. We don't know why they couldn't have kids. It could have been Zechariah's fault. But it was, it was judged on the woman, and they were seen as like not having God's favor, maybe even being cursed, with a suspicion that maybe there's a reason why God didn't bless them with a child. So she lives this life of shame despite her godliness. 
Then, miraculously, Zechariah is in the temple one day, and the angel Gabriel shows up and says, Zechariah, you and Elizabeth have found favor with God, and you are going to supernaturally conceive and have a child, and this child's going to be mighty and great and filled with the Spirit from the get-go, and is going to be a forerunner of the Messiah. It's going to be spectacular. And you shall call him John. It was really important to Gabriel that he call him John. Why it was important to call him John? I don't know. Maybe Bob the Baptist just sounded too corny or something. It has to be John. <laughs> Zechariah can't even talk for a couple months because he, he, had, he didn't initially believe this. And it was only when the baby was getting born that he finally was able to talk again. So yeah, we're supposed to call him John. Very important. So we have John the Baptist. Um, so he's going to be great. So here Elizabeth... Finally, after all these years, you know, waiting around, people thinking that you're cursed or whatever, now you're going to be blessed supernaturally to have this child at such an old age. Uh, it will glorify God. Uh, the curse has been lifted. Uh, she says, my shame has, has, has been done away. And so she's favored by God now. And her child's going to do great things. She finally gets her moment in the sun. She finally gets to shine. A few months later, Gabriel shows up with another lady, uh, this one much younger. Uh, this is the 13, she would have been 13 or 14, because that's when you, she was betrothed to Joseph, and that's when young ladies usually were betrothed to a husband. So she's, she's engaged to this guy, and the angel shows up and says, Mary, um, you are highly favored. You are blessed because uh, the Lord has chosen you to be the one that is going to bring the Son of God into this world. You are going to supernaturally conceive. And not just because, you know, God's going to enhance your natural capacities as he did with Elizabeth and Zechariah. Zechariah still had to have a role in uh, Elizabeth's pregnation, I'm, I am assuming. Uh, and, and maybe that itself was a supernatural act. I don't know. None of my business. But, but uh, with Mary, there's not even another guy involved. Some of you got what I was talking about there. Others didn't. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, with Mary, there's no God himself will plant a seed. So this is even more miraculous. And your child won't just be the forerunner of the Lord. Your child is going to be the Lord. And it's going to turn the world upside down and so on and so on. Well, Mary finds out about Elizabeth's pregnancy. And, and so now that she is newly pregnant, she goes to visit Elizabeth. And I want to pick up the story then. Here's what it says in Luke chapter 1. It says, In those days Mary set out and went with haste to the Judean town, to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Notice she didn't enter the house of Zechariah and Elizabeth because the, the males were the sole owners of houses. So she just greeted Elizabeth. I know, I, I might have to keep bringing up all the sexism in the first century. But just so you know, man, we've come a long way. All right. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb. That's John the Baptist. And Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, talking to Mary. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord comes to me? She's honored. For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she, talking about Mary here, who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. So... Mary shows up and John kicks in her womb, you know, leaps for joy. It must have been kind of an unusual kick of some sort. And then she's filled with the Holy Spirit and she's going to prophesy. And there must have been a word of knowledge that she was given because Elizabeth immediately knows that this child in Mary is the real superstar of the story. She immediately knows that her child is going to be a, a, 
the whole job of her child would be to point towards the child that is inside of Mary. And, and Mary was a distant, much younger cousin here. And so the, the child that her little cousin has is going to be the, the real star of this show. And uh, uh, will be the son of God, will be the savior of the world. And, and it's going to outshine her baby by, by, by light years. Now, you, you, if, if Elizabeth had been a, a more of a petty person, I mean, you could understand how she might get kind of bugged by this. If she has this great child, but Mary's got a greater child. You know, oh, she's blessed, but Mary is super blessed. A miracle happened to her, but more of a miracle happens to Mary. You know, before Mary showed up, she was the queen of, of the Israeli hill, if you will, okay? People would have been saying, whoa, you would hear what happened to Elizabeth, man, supernatural, wow, your child's going to do great things, wow. Mary shows up, and pfft. Mary's, now she's got, she just stole all the acclaim. And I could see, I, I, I could imagine someone getting, getting bitter about that. Oh, Mary, it's always about Mary, my little cousin. No matter how blessed you are, she's more blessed. In fact, Mary even, even, even stands up and says, right after Elizabeth gives her prophecy, she goes, I am the most blessed woman in the world, and generations from now on will call me blessed. And, and I could see other people just cringing at this, like, oh, what the... It's no fair. It's like me in sixth grade. Oh, I, I finally get a trophy, and boom, he's got to steal the limelight. But you don't find any of that with Elizabeth. In fact, she is overjoyed. She's overjoyed. And she says to Mary, blessed are you. Like, it's all about Mary. And she's happy with this. Blessed are you. Uh, and, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And blessed are you for having believed what the Lord said. And there's not a hint of jealousy. In fact, it's, she's overjoyed to be doing this. So the question then is this. What is it that, that, that Elizabeth had that I didn't when I was in sixth grade? <laughs> Elizabeth had a much greater spotlight stolen from her than I had stolen from me. Mine wasn't stolen at all, if you think about it. But uh, why did Elizabeth, how is it that she could respond so graciously when I, as a sixth grader, was a sourpuss? And I was angry and I was jealous and bitter. What, what was the difference here? And one could be just that I was a sixth grade moron, for sure. But beyond that, if you get inside of it, I think it's because, ultimately, Elizabeth and I were living in very different narratives. A, the, a narrative is the story that you tell yourself about your life that makes sense out of your life. It's your way of organizing your life. And we all do it, though most of us don't know that we do it, because we do it so automatically. We live in a story that we tell ourselves. Now, see, in sixth grade, I was living in a very, very uh, narrow, very small, very petty story. Uh, it was a story about me and how I want attention and how I want accolades. I want to keep up with my brother. Uh, it's a story about how I, I'm just always be treated unfairly because i got to live in the shadow of my brother. And, and that's where the story ends. And so, of course, I'm mad and I'm bitter and I'm all jealous and all those kind of things. But see, Elizabeth, she's living in a different kind of a story. Um, she becomes immediately aware that she's part of something much greater than herself. There's something huge going on here. And she's aware that she and Mary have been, for whatever reason, brought in to play a role in this thing that God is doing. And this thing that God is doing culminates in Jesus. And, and in Jesus, and you see this in, in, in the hymns that are sung in, in this Christmas narrative with, with Zechariah and, and Mary, they're cosmic in nature. By means of this child, uh, who, whom John will be pointing people to, uh, the world's going to change permanently. Peace is going to be brought permanently. Uh, the righteous, the exalted are going to be brought low and the low are going to be exalted and the world's going to be turned upside down. And in Jesus, the, God's going to be at work to redeem the entire creation, transform humanity and to reveal God's true nature. This is huge. This is spectacular. And they get to be a part of it. 
And see, here's the thing. If, if you are aware that you're in a story that lasts forever and a story that is full of significance, if your story, if the scope of your story is eternal and the depth of your story is, is profound, it has meaning, well, you just don't have time to worry about some of the petty stuff that people often worry about. Really, who cares what child is going to do what? We're both on this team that is going to win in eternity. We're both being used by God to be change agents in this world of magnificent proportions. Who cares whether you're the quarterback or I'm the quarterback or the pass, the touchdown pass comes to you or comes to me. The point is, we're used to accomplish this wonderful, wonderful thing. And it reveals this point that the, the longer the narrative that you live in, the story you tell yourself, the, the way that you interpret the world, the longer that is and the more profound it is, the smaller problems in your life, all other things being equal, the smaller the issues are going to seem. If you're, a, you're living in a very short, finite, sixth-grade, petty, self-centered narrative, well, being, being slighted over trophies, not getting a tall enough trophy or not being able to keep up, it seems like the end of the world. Because it's, it's taken up so much of my world, right? I got a narrow, I got a, I'm framing it in a small way, and so it's huge compared to the way I'm framing it. But see, now I look back on that stuff, and I laugh. I, I, it's, it's funny to me that that was such a concern of mine. And the reason I can laugh at it now, but it tormented me back then, is that I live in a much longer and much more profound narrative than I did when I was in sixth grade. I, I, I've, I've learned, I've grown up some, not much, but some. Uh, in some ways I haven't at all, I'll admit that. But, but in some ways, I, I know a little bit more about the real problems of the world and how, how, how incredible they are. And, and so taking my little undersized trophy and comparing it to the real problems of the world, it just doesn't amount to very much, does it? And I'm aware that I'm part of what something God is doing in this world. Uh, just like Elizabeth and Mary were. I, I, I'm, I'm a partner with God and bring about change in this world. That gives my life significance. And I'm, I, I now know that I get all my life and all my worth and all my significance uh, from, from what God thinks about me on Calvary, not by how good I can play football or how good I can do anything or whether I get a trophy or, or, or get an arrest warrant. It doesn't matter, all right? It's... it's uh, it, 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 with a broader perspective, everything becomes smaller. But with a narrow perspective, everything becomes larger. Which leads to this question. Uh, how long is your narrative? How long is your narrative? Um, and how profound is your narrative? And I'm not asking you, what do you believe? Oh, I believe that we live forever. No, because see, here's the thing. What we believe, a, a belief is simply the, the information that your brain automatically pops up when asked the question, what do you believe? And that's its significance. When you ask me what I believe, my brain will pop out the answer to that. But if, that's, if, if I only have a belief, well then, then as soon as the question goes away, the belief goes away. And it doesn't, it, it, I still believe it, but it doesn't affect how I look at the world, how I interact with the world or anything like that. What you believe, what you think you believe, is not really the issue. It's what do you live in. Uh, and, uh, this narrative it will make all the difference in the world if we live in it. it. It's about what do you say to yourself? How do you talk to yourself on a day-by-day basis? How, how are you interpreting the world? And to change, to change the narrative you live in takes intentionality. Most people live in the, the narrative that they inherited from the world, right? So they basically see the world the way that, well, whoever it was that, that influenced them saw the world. They inherit the world. As kingdom people, we're to submit. Our view of the world has got to be in line with the truth of who we know God is. And so we can't just inherit if you, we've got to be aware of our self-talk and ask the question, are we, are we in fact talking to ourselves the way God would want us to talk to ourselves? Are we living in the narrative God wants us to live in? Because the truth is, we are invited to live in a narrative that is eternal in scope 
and as profound in nature as anything could be. Which leads me back to Isaiah chapter 9. Let's read it again. Uh, I I, want to this time read the uh, message paraphrase um, just to give us some variety. So here's what it says in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 through the message. For a child has been born for us. The gift of a son for us. He'll take over the running of the world. His names will be amazing, counselor, strong God, eternal father, prince of wholeness, and his ruling authority will grow, and there'll be no limits to the wholeness he brings. I love the way he, bring, he captures the Hebrew concept of shalom. As I said last week, it means wholeness, togetherness. When things are the way that God created them to be, and they're related to other things the way that God created them to be related, you have shalom, you have peace. Um, it's not just the absence of conflict, it is the presence of, of wholeness, of harmony. And so, We've talked about how how Jesus is the amazing counselor and how Jesus is the mighty God and how Jesus is the uh, prince of peace, prince of wholeness, who brings wholeness by means of wholeness, right? So we talked about last week. So now let's look at everlasting father or eternal father. What does that mean? Uh, I I first want to make this note. Uh, This is the only place in the the whole Bible where Jesus is referred to as father. That's kind of interesting uh, because in the New Testament, he's the son, not the father. Uh, now, I was first saved in this church that was pretty close to being a cult, and, and this, this particular church didn't believe in the Trinity. They're called Oneness Pentecostals. I got a book about them out there if you're interested. Oneness Pentecostals. God bless them. Um, but but uh, they, this is one of their key proof texts. I used it many times when I was trying to evangelize this Oneness doctrine. Here it says that a son's been given, so he's a son, but of the son it says he is the father. So Jesus is both the Father and the Son. That's what these folks believe. He's not, he, he's the Father, Son, and Spirit, actually. He just plays different roles. And so this is, he's the, he's the Father and the Son. Well, that's reading a little bit into it, okay? Uh, it, it, was Isaiah actually trying to provide proper titles for the three persons of the Trinity when he wrote this? I don't think so. He didn't know about the Trinity. Um, and it's never a good idea. Look, throughout the New Testament, um, Jesus and the Father are differentiated. They talk to each other. They're different. They interact. Okay, Jesus submits to him. So you have this pattern of them being differentiated throughout the New Testament. And now on the basis of this one verse, you're going to overturn all that and say, well, they're just playing roles. That's not a good way to do theology. That's not a good way to do hermeneutics or exegesis. Uh, you don't overturn everything on the basis of one verse. The thing is this. Um, in the ancient Near East, which the Old Testament was a part of, uh, it was a, it, it, even go up to the Second Temple Judaism, it was a it, it very patriarchal culture. Uh, very patriarchal, which means men were empowered for everything. So the father um, had, had all the authority. Father owned all the property, as we just saw in, in that passage with, with Elizabeth and, and Zechariah. Um, but the father also had all the responsibility. Okay, so he's the boss, authority over everything, but also all the responsibility. And, and a good father was there for the source of the well-being of his family, provided for the food and the shelter and the protection, and, and participated at least with the loving and the caring and raising of, uh, of the children. So the father was the source. And a good father was the source you could trust. And so Isaiah here wants to say that Jesus is not only the prince of shalom who brings shalom by means of shalom, he wants to say that for all, for all eternity, he'll be the source of shalom in us. He's the eternal father. He'll, he'll always be the one who will be providing life for us. Uh, the one, we get to participate in his shalom forever. And if you want to say that about the son, the only metaphor you can use really in the ancient world is father. 
And so that's why he's called Father here. He's the everlasting source of our, of our shalom. And remember that when Isaiah says his name will be called, the, the Hebrew concept of name is Shem. And, and it, it, it has more to do with character than anything else. His character will be this fatherly provision, this fatherly sourcing. His character will be the Prince of Peace. His character will be the mighty God and the amazing counselor. So, so here he's saying that he'll be the eternal source of our well-being, of our shalom. And in fact, not only is he the source of our shalom, but as is true of Elizabeth and Mary, we are called then to participate in the spreading of that shalom. And that sums up what our call was in creation and it sums up what our call is as kingdom people. We, we saw how that looks a little bit last week, so I want to do just a little bit of review here because um, it's so important. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says this. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20 says, oh, I got it right here. If it keeps his little pro, there you go. Uh, For in him all the fullness was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile himself to, to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace, by making shalom through the blood of the cross. So here's what, here, here's what the shalom God is doing. Uh, he's, by means of the cross, you can think of the cross, this, Jesus' sacrifice, as sort of this explosion of God's undiluted, pure, self-sacrificial love that's now reverberating, reverberating throughout the cosmos. And Paul is saying that by means of the blood shed on Calvary, which is just a way of saying by means of the sacrifice, the loving sacrifice that was made on Calvary, God is now at work bringing shalom to everything in creation. Everything above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth. The whole creation is being brought with this shalom. Now, I don't know what that shalom looks like when, in terms of the whole cosmos, but I do know what it looks like here on earth. Uh, and what it looks like here on earth, for God to be spreading uh, shalom by means of the sacrifice of the cross, what it looks like is to be the church, which consists of all true followers who are aspiring to replicate the love of the cross towards all people at all times. And so we're called to live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. We're called to live with that, that other-oriented fo- focus, sacrificing for the shalom of others. Um, it's what, and in doing that, we participate in what God's doing in this world, in God's plan of redeeming the world. This, we're participating in the same move, essentially, that Mary and Elizabeth were participating in. We get to participate in something that is absolutely eternal. Um, and that looks different ways to different people, depending on what the need is. So for someone who really is aware that they are estranged from God and need to be reconciled, well, shalom there will look like introducing them to Jesus. But that's not the whole gospel by any means. A lot of people think it is. Well, just you know, save their soul and leave everything else for someone else to fix. No, the gospel is about the whole person. Shalom is about the whole person by definition. And, 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 and so if someone's hungry, shalom looks like providing food. If they're homeless, it looks like providing shelter. If they're friendless, it looks like being a friend. If they're guilty, it looks like announcing their forgiveness. If they're one of the invisible people in the world, it looks like inviting them to have a party and making them a superstar. It can look in a lot of different ways. To at-risk youth, it might look like mentoring after school. Uh, for disadvantaged single moms, it might look like providing them with a free daycare center. I, however it looks, we're to be manifesting God's will against everything that's not God's will. Which is to say we manifest and practice God's shalom against everything that is not God's shalom. And in doing that, we are helping, we're partnering with God to bring about the fulfillment of Colossians 1, 19 and 20. We're living in the narrative, in the story of Colossians 1, 19 and 20. And see, this is the only, this is, this is the only story that will go on forever. Uh, this is the only story that could ever lay claim to being eternal. 
Uh, as I, I talked about this last week, where see all the kingdoms of the world and uh, just all the organizations of the world, they all operate with a power over model. It's the only power that's in their toolbox. It's the power of coercion, the power of laws, the power to enforce laws, the power to put people in prison, the power to kill enemies. That's how the world runs. The trouble is that, that the most that you can ever do with power over or with coercion power, the most you can hope for is uh, to control people's behavior. That's all a law can do. Uh, so really all the ideologies of the world and nations, the structures of the world, it's all uh, different forms of behavior modification. That's all, the, that's all they can shoot for. And the trouble is that, that behavior isn't really the problem. It's never really the problem. Behavior just flows from our heart, as Jesus talked about. And so if there's problems in the behavior, that's a symptom, not the cause. The cause is the heart, the fallen human heart. And see, a law can never get to the heart. A gun, a bomb, a bullet certainly can't get to the heart unless you're shooting at the heart to kill it. But it can't change the heart. And see, folks, unless... And until there is shalom in the human heart, there'll never be shalom in the world because the world we get is the world that reflects our heart. This is just what the, this mess that we have is simply an expression of the collective mess of our hearts. And it gets manifested as behavior. But if you're shooting at behavior, you'll never fix the problem because you're never going to the source of the problem. So by definition, can you see how none of the systems of the world, the ideologies of the world, the politics of this world, none of it holds out any hope for any kind of lasting shalom in this world. If you think that someday we're going to arrive at, at this shalom in, in this world by means of just getting the right laws, candidates, policies, or whatever, you're missing the boat. It, it's, that can only shoot at symptoms. It can't address the actual problem. And so this is why the story that's told in Colossians 1, 19 through 20, the story of God now using this different kind of power, this self-sacrificial love, the power of the cross, to transform the world, to bring shalom into people's lives. That's the only story that could possibly ever end up being a happy ever after story. Because it's not relying on the power of coercion, it's relying on the power of self-sacrificial love. And, 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 and so this is the story we're to trust in, this is the kind of power we're to trust in, and this is the story, the unending story that we're to live in. The story we should be telling ourselves is that our, who we are, what our identity is, is, is we're the people who carry this out. Uh, the hands and feet of Jesus who are, by means of the love of the cross, bringing shalom to every person, every situation that we can find. We want to storm the gates of hell and be shalom bringers. The way Jesus says it is, be, be shalom makers, be peacemakers. Bring us shalom wherever we go. So here's the thing. If we, when you step into that unending eternal narrative full of significance, it changes everything. When you change the narrative you live in, you change how you see the world, you change how you respond to the world. Uh, an acquaintance of mine, Richard Beck, wrote a book called Slavery, uh, the Savior to Death, Slavery of Death. And it is a good book, uh, a really eye-opening kind of a book. And his, his, his basic point here is this. Most people, including most Christians, live in a finite narrative, a narrative that ends with death. Because, see, what you believe isn't what's important. It's what you live and what you say to yourself, how you talk to yourself. That's what determines the direction of your life and how you interpret things. So, yeah, Christians believe in life after death, but most don't live there. They live in a finite narrative. And then he shows, and there's all sorts of research that behind this, but he just shows that that, um, that awareness of death really structures the whole of our lives. It means that we are, we, we're finite people living in a finite world with finite resources, you're going to run out of time. And so what that does, it, it kind of puts the, it ups the ante on everything. Um, 
it, 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 it means that you've got to get your best life now. You, you, you might not, you probably won't have another chance. You live as though this is all there is. And I think most Christians do this. You believe in, in, in eternal life, but you live as though that wasn't true just in case you're wrong. <laughs> right? So, so yeah, I believe in that, I, but, but look, at that, that's a hope, right? What's real is I got this, and so you live to get your best life now. It creates what he calls a scarcity mentality or a scarcity mindset. It gets really intensified when people go through things like the depression and, 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 and you know, things like that where, where you're like, we're in a famine. The mind goes into a certain survival mode. But to some degree, all of humanity does that when we live in a finite narrative. The world turns into sort of a feeding frenzy where everyone's trying to get their best life now. Uh, in some ways, like you know, Good Friday, those kind of crazy bad rushes that they have on Good Friday. I think we have a picture of that. Uh, that's sort of a microcosm of, of the whole species. We, we get crazy. It's like... This is all what we might have. And as happens on, good, on these Black Friday craziness things, fights break out because if I want my best life and you want your best life, well, our interests might collide or our nations might collide or our religions might collide. And ultimately, what, what Beck shows, and he's not alone in this at all, but, but uh, it's that awareness of death, of our finitude, which, which we as a culture try to put out of our mind. We just try to keep it at bay to live as though that wasn't there, but we know it is there. And... A great deal, if not the majority of our anxiety and our fears and our jealousy and our pettiness, it comes from this. It comes from the scarcity mindset. It, essentially, we're, we're sixth graders who realize that we want to get our attention, we want to get acclaim, we want to get some, some accolades, and there's only so much glory to go around. It's no fair if someone sucks it all up. And so we get mad, and we want to try to get some of that. And the whole world runs like this. It's a rat race. It's, a, it's why people are always so tired. They're constantly chasing, and, and it, the scarcity mindset creates this never got enough syndrome. Uh, it, 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 there's always a little bit more, and so people are, are, are rats on treadmills chasing after stuff, never more so than this time of year. People feel exhausted. It also, it's also why, uh, and he doesn't get into this as much, but it's also why people have an uh, underlying sense of meaninglessness, a gnaw in their gut, which they try to suppress and push away and drown out, and, but there's a sense of, ah, this, this is a rather pointless thing because if death ends at all, it is utterly pointless, meaningless. When I lost my faith my first year in, at the University of Minnesota, I, I was, uh, uh, this, this tormented me because uh, I, I loved feeling like my life had a purpose when I was a Christian, but then I lost my faith because I couldn't find a Christ, uh, smart Christian for my life. And, and, and so I went back to my atheism and now the emptiness of life was just gnawing at me. It's just, it was just, oh, I, it, it, I felt, it made me nauseous sometimes. Um, Beck says this at one point. He says, the death looms large all the time. It's always there, the shadow. We, we try to ignore it, blah, 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 it's like, go away. But, but it's always there, and it makes a mockery of all of our projects. And that was one that just tormented me. I, I remember going to a professor, talking to him about, like, like how, do you, how do you go on day to day? I, I'm not thinking about suicide, but I'm, I, I could see where I could get there, and that was concerning me. What, what, is, what do you get out of bed for? And people always say, well, we want to leave the world a better place for our children. We want to make America great again. We want to, you know, whatever. There's some kind of a, oh, this time we're going to get it right. We want to, and that's fine. But I was always thinking, like, so, so you leave the world a better place for your children, but your children die. You die, and then your children die, and their children die, and eventually the whole earth dies, gets sucked up in the sun. It turns into a, a black hole, explodes, a supermassive nova, and, and that's how everything's going to go, and everything's going to ultimately die heat death. So who gives a rip about anything? Why do anything? 
This story, if death ends at all, if science is a whole story of things, then this, the story of this universe is not even a story. A story has to have a point, a direction, a something. But according to current science, uh, this is just some kind of bizarre, weird, cosmic burp. Uh, inexplicable burp, and here we are. But it has no meaning. It's a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And so how do you have motivation to do anything? It's, one of my favorite quotes of all time is Jean-Paul Sartre. Sartre. Uh, he said, a finite point without an infinite reference point is essentially meaningless. Think about it. A finite point that begins and ends, if that's all it does, begins and ends, well, then it's ultimately meaningless because once it's over, it doesn't matter to it or anything else whether it ever was. It, it, if, if everything's a finite point, everything is essentially meaningless. And I, 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 at this time in my life, I just thought that was absolutely true. And to embrace that, to embrace that meaninglessness, like I was reading a lot of Nietzsche trying to become an ubermensch, a superman who can gut it out and just kind of grit through it. Nah, I, I, I sneer at the nihilistic emptiness of existence. <laughs> uh, spit into the wind. Uh, but I wasn't good at that. I, I wasn't good at that. Like, who cares if you spit in the wind or not? It's all, it's all empty. And it was just, it's extremely painful to accept that everything is pointless. It really is extremely painful. And then I, it started to me that that's odd. That's odd that it's painful to accept that life is meaningless if it is, in fact, meaningless. If it's all meaningless, if there's no point, there's no reason to it, no, then how did nature ever evolve beings that wish it was otherwise? By natural cause and effect, nature produces something that's totally out of sync with nature. It's meaningless, but here we are longing for, for meaning, and not just sort of as an incidental wish, but people commit suicide over this. So how do we get this impulse that it's supposed to be meaningful if meaning has never existed? And I came to the conclusion that the fact that I long for there to be meaning must imply that there is meaning. There must be an infinite reference point. My, it can't all come to an absolute end. And for a lot of reasons I can't get into right now, I, I, I just found that this, I have all the reasons in the world to locate the God who's revealed in Jesus Christ as the infinite reference point that gives my life meaning. Hallelujah. Uh, that, that, here, God in his infinitude became finite. And this is what the Christmas story is all about, Right? God was willing in his infinite love to become this little tiny baby, become finite. And then to go further and enter into solidarity with our sin and our curse on the cross. Uh, it, it, that's the bomb that's reverberating throughout the world right now. And, and, and now God is spreading that, that by means of the love of, of, of God shed on the cross, the blood shed on the cross, God is bringing peace throughout the cosmos and peace here on earth by means of, of, of people who will align themselves with him. Um, all that is going on now, and that is, that is giving, that is, that is what gives our life meaning. That's the infinite reference point. It's what gives our life significance. And it lasts forever, which is why it's meaningful. It, but it's only meaningful if it lasts forever. We have a father, uh, a savior who is a fatherly, who is our fatherly source, and wants to be our source forever and ever. And the and, and, uh, question is, will we align ourselves with it? Will we surrender to that? You'll know that you're living in a narrative that is eternal instead of a temporal narrative to the degree, and, and changing the narrative you live in it takes time and it takes intentionality, but it must be done. And you'll know that you're heading in the right direction when, when well, one thing, you'll lose your fear of death. If you, when you really believe this is true, when you really have faith, and faith is about a vision, right? Holding something as a, in, in your mind as a substantial reality. When, when, when it starts to feel real to you, you're living in this narrative, you'll lose your fear of death. You'll find that you're able to opt out of the frenzy, the feeding frenzy that, is, that we call ordinary living here. 
Um, you find that you're, you get less anxious over things that used to make you very anxious. Your problems seem more manageable. You have a broader perspective on things. You'll find that you no longer need to cling to your possessions. You're able to hold them lightly because you realize that this life isn't the whole thing. In fact, this life is a prelude to the real thing. Uh, you find that if you're living in the narrative that never ends, that giving away becomes much, much easier because you're not clinging to anything. And then you begin to find that the, the profound joy and the profound meaning that's found in giving away to bring shalom into other people's lives. You begin to discover that that is, in fact, one of the greatest, maybe the greatest joy you can have precisely because it's the most meaningful thing you can possibly do. Because now you're imitating God, uh, living in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. And you find that, 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 that you're living in a narrative that never ends when um, loving people concretely, sacrificially becomes very, very important to you, more so than for most other people, whereas things that other people regard as being very, very important start to feel unimportant to you. And maybe things that used to freak you out no longer freak you out because you've zoomed out. You have a longer narrative, a more significant narrative, and everything else, well, it's like they say, don't sweat the small stuff. And if you look at it from eternity, everything's small stuff. <laughs> uh, there's a calmness. that be, You begin to experience that peace that passes understanding. Um, so look at this is the time of year where anxiety tends to run higher than usual. For some, depression runs higher than usual. And beyond just all the Christmas stuff, that, the normal stuff that makes people very, very anxious and that we need to zoom out for and have a longer perspective, or maybe you're anxious about those funky family get-togethers. <laughs> no, that, 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 that's, that's, that's a reality. But on top of all that, we've got this insanity going on with our country. And there are more than a few social commentators that are very concerned about what is going on here. The concern can be expressed by the fact that when I say the, the craziness in this country, it's, it's right now with this whole impeachment thing, it is revealing something, at least some people I believe it's revealing something that is really wrong, broken, and maybe unfixable in this country. And it's not about whether or not Trump will be impeached or not. Um, what, what, what really is concerning is what, what this division reveals about us. I, I, I don't think we've ever had this, where, where I, 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 I watched a good deal of the impeachment proceedings, going back and forth between different news stations to make sure I'm getting all these different perspectives, and I just find it to be so fascinating. The different worlds that we live in, and people talking past each other. But what's amazing is no matter what is said, no matter what is done, no one is budging. Everyone's doubling down. In fact, doubling down where the other side... It's treasonous. They're using words that are just like, we would never use these words before. Both sides are, you're the end of America. If you win, America's going to go downhill. No, if you win, America's going to go downhill. And no one, no, I was amazed, no one stepped in and said, hey, function as a referee. Like, can we try to at least try to understand why someone might think differently than the way you think? Is it conceivable? There was no one even wanting to try to do that. It was if I was not a believer in Jesus, I would be very cynical right now. And frankly, as it, comes, it pertains to America, America I am very cynical. I, I, this, the, it's a result of us being increasingly siloed. Tech, tech, technology has brought us many great advances, but, but it, it's also had this downside that it has isolated us. And you look at the last hundred years, and where there once was community, now we have individuals plugged in to various venues. And, and all indications are that it's going to keep going in that direction. 
Uh, and people then coagulate into their little silos, and their brains get formed and hardened uh, by, by the homogeny of those that they talk to, to the point where they can no longer understand the other side. And I don't know how you walk that back. I don't know what could solve this problem. I don't know what could possibly fix it. A, a great leader could come, maybe, and, and rally the troops, but I, I, I don't think there's a person listening to this message this weekend who thinks that any leader would be great enough to unite us, all for one, one for God bless America. I said... A tragedy would unite us for a little bit, like 9-11, but only, you know, for a couple hours maybe, maybe a week. But boom, as soon as the dust settles, we're at each other's throat again. How do you walk this back? Well, folks, here's the thing. If, if you're living in a small narrative, if you're living in a short narrative, a finite narrative, and especially if you're living in a narrative where your hope and your well-being, to some degree at least, hangs on the well-being of America, being the light of this world, the last great hope of this world, well, then you are going to be a very sad person. You're going to you're not going to have the peace that passes all understanding. You're not going to have a kind of joy on this. No, it will, it will, it will freak you out. But see, as I'm watching this thing here, and I'm, I'm just thinking, I, I, don't know, I, I don't know how to fix this. I don't know how this could ever walk back. Uh, walk this back. I'm also aware that what I'm watching here it was, was never the hope of the world. What, what you're watching here are the, the experts in, 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 in behavior modification fighting over whose method of behavior modification is the best, right? Uh, and, and regardless of who wins or who loses this round, uh, it'll be just another fight in the next round. And because they're not dealing with the heart, because they can't deal with the heart, it's not in their toolbox, uh, their kind of power, the kind of power they trust in can't get to the heart. Because of that, they're never really going to fix anything. Which is why we've had this merry-go-round. When I'm watching this here, this, this venom towards one another and this fighting, I'm aware that this has gone on thousands and thousands and thousands of times before. And it will go on thousands and thousands and thousands of times again if the Lord doesn't return uh, before then. Because this is what makes the world go round. This kind of, because they're all living in finite narratives, relying on the wrong kind of power to accomplish something that doesn't make much of a difference anyways. So don't sweat it! And the promise of God is that we're going in this direction where, where God's bringing shalom into this world by means of this little band of unimpressive people who are willing to imitate Jesus in self-sacrificial love. God's going, going about that and does look impressive to the world, but the promise of God is that this is what will transform the world it already has. It's right now reverberating throughout the universe, and we get to have a, a role in, 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 a significant role in, 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 in spreading this. Our lives get to count. Our lives get to matter. We get to make a difference, and that difference goes on for all eternity. And that's where the hope is. It's not in the power brokers. It's not, you know, when Jesus comes into this world, you would have thought that, hey, Herod's running the show, Caesar, Pilate, Tiberius, these guys are all the big power brokers, right? The future lies in their hands. Wrong! It's in this little tiny baby in this little tiny manger in this little tiny town, and later on he gets crucified. Wow, that's really impressive. <laughs> in fact, the resurrection of Jesus shows that it is impressive if you have eyes to see and ears to hear. This is the power that changes the world. This, in fact, is the power of God. Our one thing, our one job is to be replicating that collectively, individually, in every way, shape, and form we can, trusting that that is the power that overcomes the world. I, I, I want to encourage this as we're going into this holiday season. Uh, here's an exercise that I, I, I have recommended before, and I'll just mention it here. I, I, I use it whenever necessary, which is with some frequency. Whatever the issue is that feels so huge, and I've got a couple going on right now in my life, and I would say that the impeachment thing is one of the issues that's in my head, right? I've got all these th things, they seem so big. Well, big, a lot of tension, a lot of, lot, of, lot of reasons to get upset, a lot of reasons to be nervous. I should be freaking out right now. Well, when you're in a situation like that, zoom ahead. And, and, and this is what it is to have faith. You, faith is about seeing something as a substantial reality. It's not just believing something, it's living in it, it's seeing it, it's imagining it, 
And then cultivating that, you're trying to make that the narrative you live in, the story that you tell yourself. So in 10 situations, zoom ahead 10,000 or 20,000 or a million years. I don't care. And imagine yourself sitting down with Jesus in the kingdom. Now that God's cruciform love, cross-like love is permeating throughout the creation and bringing everything into alignment with it, now that his peace, the peace has come, you and Jesus are watching old-time movies, old videos of your life on earth. Well, you'll still be on earth, but a perfected earth. Back when the earth was under the bodies of the principalities and powers. And you look at this event that you're in right now. Oh, America's falling apart. It's turning a corner. It's going to go downhill. Oh, you've got uh, financial problems in the world coming out. You've got the health problems. You got all that stuff. You and Jesus are looking at this tough time that you're in, and you're laughing your heads off because it's so tiny. And you thought it was like me looking back at my sixth grade self. You were better off about that. It was like... Come, man, have you grown. So enter into the joy of that. You have an eternal perspective. You now realize that this, this, this wasn't that big of a thing at all. It was a little hiccup in this timeless uh, story that you're in. And, and, and now grab onto the peace that you have, the well-being that you have 10,000 years from now, and bring it back in the present. And now look at the world from that perspective. That's what it is to have an eternal perspective. And you'll find that that just frames things very, very differently. It doesn't make problems go away. It doesn't mean they're unimportant. It doesn't mean you can ignore them. But it does make them manageable. And, and, and you have a peace, a subterranean peace that pervades it all, even when things are going bad. Don't be so heavenly minded you're no earthly good, but be at least as heavenly minded as you need to be to be some earthly good. Because if you're just participating in the merry-go-round of nonsense and mayhem and feedy frenzy of this world, you're not doing the world any good. We're to be a people who have our identity in a different story, who march according to a different story, who sacrifice according to a different story, who trust in a different story. Because that's the story, at the end of the day, that lasts forever. And it's the only one that does. Put all your eggs in that basket. Amen. Would you stand? If you're here tonight and have any need that could use prayer, I want to encourage you to come up here and, and, and the prayer teams would love to pray with you, uh, minister to you, and, and uh, I encourage you to take advantage of that. Or if you're here tonight and you're not a, a surrendered follower of Jesus, uh, I encourage you to check that out. Come up here and talk to these people and they'd love to uh, explain to you what it is to become a follower of Jesus. If you haven't yet joined in on the campaign, uh, there's more information about that as well as overall finances at the, at the help desk. You can stop by there. Uh, otherwise, I'll see you on Christmas Eve. We're going to be talking about Emmanuel. I encourage you to come and bring your loved ones and your friends. But as we leave this place, can we do it as a people once again who are committed to living in the long story, the eternal story, not a short story, and to living in that story that has meaning and significance that's centered on the cross, not the stories that we inherit from this world or the story we inherit from America. And let's put all our trust and hope in that. If you're in agreement with that, and you want to be a shalom spreader, say amen and go out and spread some shalom. And God bless.